I realized there had to be another way out of that. A new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. This new holiday of yours is scratching me right where I itch. Let's do it then. All right. Festivus is back. Ladies and gentlemen, we know. I'm glad to be back again. Glad I'm still alive. I mean, it's been a long time. <laughs> it's been a it's been a good year. No TV commercials, no new ones, right? So we, we still... no. <laughs> I, I've had people tell me, surely you must get a terrible hard time when you lecture. I mean, all those non-believers and all that. I've had 11 hecklers and over 700 lectures, and two of them were drunk. And you get that many of you talked about sports or religion or politics or whatever. Well, it's not only them. There are other people, uh, ancient academics and fossilized physicists, who are constantly speaking out, saying stupid and false things. He traveled all over a great deal. He wasn't married until he was 60, and then only to avoid a debate with me. <laughs> we had one scheduled in New York, and he got married instead. What? Uh, Honest to God. That's bizarre. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! With your host, Tim Banal. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 11th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special Featuring Stanton Friedman. Very excited about this, folks. You know I'm an enormous Stanton Friedman fan. I think he is just the best. I consider him a mentor, a friend, part of the fabric of Banal of America. And here, the 11th annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Very, very exciting. It's a funny trick of math in a way, because it's the 11th annual, but we did the first one 10 years ago. So uh, it's pretty remarkable. I think about 10 years ago, almost to the day, we taped the very first uh, holiday special. And here we are, 11 years later, or I guess 10 years later, to do the 11th one. Yeah, see, this is why I'm not a nuclear physicist. But, of course, he is <laughs> nuclear physicist uh, decades in the field of ufology. Are we up to 50 now, 50 years in ufology? Well, I gave my first lecture... No, 1967, so we're getting close. Okay, nice, nice. I've been studying since 58, so yeah, more than, more than 50 years of studying, but, uh. There you go. Opening my big mouth, not quite so long. Well, listen, I've seen some people who say that they've spent decades in the field, and then you do the value, you're like, wait a minute, you've been in this since you were 12? You know, and that's like, <laughs> well, that's when I read the first book. It's like, that doesn't count, but. <laughs> I was 24. Sorry. There he goes. That counts. That that counts. That counts. Of course, he is the author of numerous books himself. Crash at Corona, Top Secret Magic, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, which he wrote with Kathy Martin, Flying Saucers in Science, and Science Was Wrong with Kathy Martin. Has there been anything else in the last couple of years? I used my old uh, template here. Is there anything I'm missing? No, we're, we're we're working on something, but I can't tell you much about it. That's how it usually goes, I understand. And, of course, the website is stantonfriedman.com. He is the father of modern-day ufology. He is the star of the BOA Audio Holiday Special. Welcome back to the show, Stan. 
I'm glad to be back again. Glad I'm still alive. I mean, it's been a long time. <laughs> it's been a it's been a good year. No TV commercials, no new ones, right? So we we still, no. <laughs> the portfolio nice still to get stands some more one. of them. Yeah, yeah. We got we got to get on those Big Bang Theory people. Enough's enough. They got to get you on the show. So I wish that would happen okay. big time. Um, so as I said to you before we started the show, we have a ton of questions. We got about twenty five questions because these people are insatiable. We're going to try to get to as many as possible because we didn't okay. do questions last year for the uh, big tenth oh. anniversary special. So yeah, I just wanted it to be you and me. So now they're they're getting their revenge because now they have tw- twenty five questions. <laughs> For us, there you go. So uh, we already did. How you been? So let's just dive in because that's what the folks want. They want to make sure we get all the questions in. So the first one, actually, ironically enough, came last December because Gene here thought that we were going to do questions. So his his has been sitting in the pile for over a year. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully Gene's still around to hear it. So we'll we'll get to that. I'm on your side regarding MJ12. He says. But do you ever fear that one day Bill Moore and or Doty will confess in detail that they fabricated the story in total? Of, uh, of course, that could be one more go-round of disinformation. And uh, you know, he notes here that he's a former Fredericton resident and temporary professor at St. Thomas University, uh, where he heard you there and amongst other places. And he now is oh, in Nova okay. Scotia. So he's a local. Well, it's okay. Nova Scotia's a nice place. Okay. <laughs> uh no, actually, I don't, because there were things that I know Bill didn't know to be true at the time we got the documents. Uh, and, you know, it's not that Bill didn't play games occasionally with this, that, or the other thing, but uh, I still have yet to find a good argument against the reality of the documents. Oh, there are dozens of phony documents, and I talk about those in Top Secret Magic, but there, there's details. Uh, Bill didn't know about uh, Donald Menzel, for example, uh, turning out to be a world-class cryptologist and doing classified work for many companies and the government and so forth and so on. Uh, And I still got people saying, well, he couldn't have led a double life. Uh, There are plenty of spies who've led double lives. Yeah, we see it all the time. Yeah, look at Bill Cosby; he was leading a double life. So I don't know what that's your argument there. Uh, So uh, I I don't expect that to happen. And people have overplayed uh, Doty's role in this whole business. That he was playing games. Sure, why not? That's what government guys do. But. Uh, I don't believe he knew enough to get those documents right. The little details. Right, right. You know, why the, the markings on of certain things on the documents and stuff like that. I, I just don't, I'm, I'm not worried about that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think if anything, uh, this kind of almost goes back to the conversation you and I had when we were setting up the show, is uh, this is probably the the only thing is, is like he, I, I, I'm concerned hearing the question just because I know how the media is that these guys could end up, or someone, some random dude who has nothing to do with it could be like, I made it all up, and they'll they'll jump all over it, and that's just a big setback for everybody. You know what I mean? Even if the guy, even if the guy's story would completely fall apart, because 48 hours later they're not going to report that part. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, ufology that's, is full of crazy moments. What can I say? Exactly. That's the world we live in, though. You gotta just be aware yeah. it could happen. Uh, Brent, who also goes by Aussie Bloke on the uh, long, long forgotten but beloved uh, Good Parade, he asks, 
Mr. Friedman, I'm curious to know if any of your opinions have changed now due to the advancement of technology in respect to the ETH and sightings of UFOs in general. With the ability to both look further into space and our own backyard monitored by so many satellites, surely there would be more hard evidence and even interaction. What is your take on these now, and are your thoughts different than well, before? Uh, if anything, uh, I, I, I don't, you know, satellites are, are very excellent tools. But the data is born classified on the spy satellites, the good ones. That's all kind of, look, the NSA, if anybody could, uh, wants to do me a favor, they could get the NSA to declassify <laughs> the content of 156 top secret Umbra UFO documents on which you can read one sentence per page. Uh, and some of that does have to do with uh, Soviet sightings that the NSA picks up by its radio sneakiness, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, no, I, I don't worry about that. And I, I see no reason. People seem to think, oh, well, aliens, I just had a letter from someone the other day insisting that, uh, well, why would they come here without, uh, you know, landing on a White House lawn and talking to us? Jesus, who still thinks that? <sighs> Well, I, I just saw a guy from Hungary just was, was saying that. And, you know, I try to let people know aliens have their own reasons for coming here. And if you don't like any of the other ones, let us recognize that to any civilization in our local galactic neighborhood, we're a pain in the butt. We're obviously not concerned with human life. You know, we got a war in which we killed 50 million of our own kind. We've exploded 2,000 nuclear warheads. People think three, you know. No, it's not three. It's 2,000. Right. Uh, and so if, if for no other reason than to quarantine us, and they're doing their thing. I think we're, there are a lot of grad students coming here to see how come this crazy place is the way it is. Yeah. Why all the languages, for example? Why don't they spend their money and effort feeding their people? You know, a trillion right. dollars this year on things military? Cripes, we can't afford that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think uh, I think that just about covers it. Yeah, so you don't see any, nothing's changed as far as you see. Just, just because we have the better ability to look for stuff doesn't change the whole uh, overall hypothesis in your view. Well, yeah, and let, let's not forget that it's the government who owns the radar exactly. installation. Exactly, that's what I was thinking. It's the government too. who owns the spy satellite. It's like when you say, Where this, where's the hard evidence? It's like, they, if they have, it, they have it. They have the satellites. How are we supposed to? You know, they're not going to go, hey, look at what we got, an incredible photo of a UFO. It's like they're not going to do that. So, you know, no. it, our hands are tied. It would be nice if they'd stop. Uh, well, it's not only them. There are other people, the uh, ancient academics and fossilized physicists, who are constantly speaking out, saying stupid and false things, you know, like the English astronomer Royal who said, only kooks see UFOs. These things all go to the direction of keeping people from reporting what they're seeing or keeping the former military guys from telling us what they know. Right, right, right. But there are a lot of stories from there I'd like to hear about. You yeah, know. exactly. All right, next on the docket, Red Pill Junkie. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's one of the uh, more prolific writers online right now and fantastic guy. So uh, if you're not familiar, no. we should check out his stuff. Uh, Red Pill Junkie. He asks, uh, what's your take on the current position of people like Seth Shostak, speaking of the, uh, speaking of the fossilized physicists and Asian academics, and the like, that 
the first alien intelligence we are likely to encounter will be post-biological, i.e. AI, artificial intelligence, in nature, uh, which he well, says... I, uh, I think it's, it's malarkey, because we, collectively at least, as a society, have already uh, encountered... Uh, you know, whether these guys, they might be a combination of a, a cyborg, or is it a combination between human and machines? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But if we look at the best abduction cases, we're dealing with thinking living creatures. That doesn't mean there aren't other kinds out there. I'm not going to generalize it, say, because that's what comes here. That's everything that's out there. Right. But... Uh, we got enough abduction cases, and, you know, even aside from abduction, in Ted Phillips' 5,000 or so physical trace cases from 80 countries, no evidence, of course, you understand, uh, about uh, one-sixth involve reports of beings seen with the craft on the ground. That's a lot of sightings from a lot of places, independent reports of things that seem to be moving around and, uh, you know, uh, seem to be creatures. Yeah. So Makes sense. I can't me. help it. That, that data's there. Hmm. Okay. He mentions, uh, he says this this idea here is uh, also something that was considered by the late Mac Tonys uh, when he posited the Greys could be sort of an automaton, intelligent but devoid of sentience. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's out there. It's, look, a, it's an idea. Look, the, the science fiction writers have come up with all kinds of ideas like that. And I'm not saying that none of them are true. But at least here we have enough cases. There were beings uh, in the Betty and Barney Hill case. Uh, you know, and I use the term being in its broadest sense. So it wasn't robots. It wasn't clink clank. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. beings. You, you may not have wanted to have coffee with him. I don't know. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, just, just you know, in, in my own imagination now, I'm imagining, you know, it really would be a cool scenario someday if, like, all these probes we send to other planets, someday a probe just comes here and, and starts sort of like, and then people get, well, what is that? You know, that would be a, ni- a neat way for disclosure to happen, but, you know. <laughs> oh, by the way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it turns out we're being, we're they're looking for stuff on our planet. What is this? Um, okay, Tony Sakalowskis, uh simply says, ask him about Project Serpo. So he's just, he's ordering me to ask you about it. So yeah. there you go. Okay. Well, I, I I read quite a bit early on, and and I even did a column. I do a monthly column for the MUFON Journal, Perceptions. And I pointed out a num- lot of inconsistencies in the stories that were being told. There were this many people, and the numbers don't add up when you go, well, about what happened to him. I've heard people say that uh, President Obama was one of those people and other th- people. And, oh, yeah, that gets crazy, yeah. And, you know, at, at best in my gray basket, and I, I do have Caston's book around here someplace, but I still haven't read it, so hmm. I, I, you know. But I, I'm, I think they can find out what they need to know about us and I don't think it's a fair exchange. What are we giving them? I mean, uh, if it was an exchange program, so where are the guys who came here? Right, right. Uh, Guys in quotes now. They may be gals, too. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, it makes you wonder what, yeah, exactly. It's an interesting story. It certainly is. I'm surprised well, that you yeah. keep it in your gray basket because I figured uh, I've, I've kind of dismissed it out of hand, so maybe I need to give it a better, a better, uh, more open-minded look. Give it a try. There you I go. Like it. <laughs> I've gotten in a lot of trouble uh, from people who say that, Stan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. Uh, all right, Kirk Walker asks, Mr. Friedman, do you accept the idea that there are hundreds or thousands of alien abductions? Well, you have to say over what period of time. Right, exactly. Uh, I asked him for more clarification on that, but he didn't get back to I, me. So I would no. certainly, you know, we got a lot of time to work with here, so uh, not too many grad students doing their work. Uh, you know, people have said, well, after the first 10, why do you need to do any more? Well, if you're looking for something, for example, uh, people with uh, biological defects, uh, hemophilia, one in 10,000 has it. If they're looking for DNA from such people, you've got to pick up an awful lot of specimens. So, you know, uh, also, when I was in a long time ago in high school, I cut up a frog. Thousands of people cut up a frog in high school biology. Yeah. Why do you keep doing it? It's an educational tool. It's not that we're trying to figure out how to grow frogs for better meat or something. (laughs) But you see my point. Mm -hmm. Things, there are a lot of things go on. You know, it's part of a an initiation ceremony or something like that. You got to pick up five aliens, four, five Earthlings. You know, do your reports before you get your PhD. (laughs) Exactly. That's how you get into the celestial frat. Is to uh, yeah. go, go kidnap hey, a like, human. That's a that's a good line. Celestial friend. <laughs> there you go. You can use that. You can use that. Okay. Um. Yeah. Well, it's like I said. He didn't really add any clarification. So based on the question, it's like it seems like a certainly like it'd be one a year for two hundred years, and you're already at hundreds. So it's not really you know you know I, I, it's a hard sort of question to answer. So we uh, move on. To Marco Withrow, who says, thanks again, Tim, for the opportunity to interact with a true icon. We are so glad to see that Stan is back on the saddle for another BOA Audio Holiday special. You're in our thoughts. In light of the current state of ufology, the turf wars, and the infighting, etc., which is really, uh, that's part for the course. That's not really the current state of ufology, but... <laughs> He would like to know if there are, he would like to know if there was ever a time when you were either so discouraged with the state of ufology or just so completely frustrated enough with it to have considered leaving the field. And, uh, where do you get that perseverance to continue through all of the nonsense that's out there? He says, thanks again. And, uh, the safest, ah, the safest, yeah. The safest and happiest of holidays to the both of you. There you go. Well, uh, Frankly, I enjoy doing what I've been doing, and I, I, I've had people tell me, surely you must get a terrible hard time when you lecture, I mean, all those non-believers and all that. I've had 11 hecklers in over 700 lectures, uh, and two of them were drunk, and you get that many of you talked about sports or religion or politics or whatever. So, uh, no, I'm not happy about the state of ufology, but living in Fredericton, New Brunswick, it takes me out of the mainstream, you know, not too many tomatoes <laughs> selling by my head. <laughs> so, uh, not really. Uh, I wish I was a faster typist. That would make life better. And, uh, you know, but I haven't been... It, it's facts and data that intrigue me. I mean, after all, 
you look back at my employment history, three years and they cancel a program, three years someplace else and they cancel a program, three years someplace else, uh, you know, and I only got out of um, being an industrial nuclear physicist because the last offer I got to work full-time to figure out how flying saucers work for McDonnell Douglas, no less. Uh, the program got canceled before I even started, so I put in three months, and that was it. So uh, it wasn't because uh, I didn't like what I was doing, and that made me even stronger, more inclined to keep lecturing, keep talking, keep writing. Uh, I enjoy it. Yeah, I enjoy doing your show. You know, I'm a, I'm a Leo. I'm, I'm a big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, so but I guess I'll just sort of uh, hone in a tiny bit on his question. So, but has there never been anything sort of in the field itself that's made you be like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't deal with this community of researchers? Well, uh, again, I'm helped by the fact that I'm not close to a whole bunch of other people yeah, that, yeah. that I have to put up with. Well, with the uh, internet, you can you, <laughs> you can be as close well, as you I, like. I try, <laughs> yeah, I try to avoid. I, I don't get my primary information from the internet. You know, mm. it's, it's like the, you can't blame the U.S. Post Office when you're sending letters. Uh, it's the content of the letters that matters. You know, you may not like their service, but uh, on occasion, or the Canadian Post Office is even slower on the cross the border stuff. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, I, I'm. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Now, I was, uh, after the heart attack, I worried of, you know, what would I be able to do or not do and stuff like that, but I've had no consequences, so hmm. my stents are working. All right. No, that's good to know. That's good news. Um, Adam Go Rightly, who you may know as uh, the crackpot historian of uh, the paranormal and uh, national treasure and author, he, uh, we gave him a pass here. We like to, we, we try to discourage the silly ones, but... He uh, he's a good friend, so he asks, Mr. Friedman, do you still believe in that Roswell junk? Well, I don't believe in any Roswell junk. There's a whole ton of Roswell junk out there. Uh, <laughs> but I certainly believe that an intelligently con- wreckage of an intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft was covered there with bodies. Uh, I just heard that Bill Nye is satisfied that it was, uh, you know, really Project Mogul. And my encounters with Bill Nye tell me he doesn't know a darn thing about UFOs and certainly about Roswell. Uh, yeah, Roswell's had more silly explanations than you can imagine. Mm. Uh, one of the, there was something that bothered me. It's not enough to keep from doing what I'm doing, but when that crash test dummies explanation was brought forth. Yeah and got treated seriously by even the New York Times, I talked to the guy who was in charge of the program, Colonel Madsen, uh, and my goodness, uh, two important things. None of the dummies were dropped until several years after Roswell, and they were, you know, six feet tall, 175 pounds, wooden, and in Air Force <laughs> gear. Yeah, uh, and the reason for that was not to make a show of anything, but the drag. The, the idea is you kick these dummies out of uh, ejection seats. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you got to do all the details of it. Yeah, and uh, certainly the drag and the heating of the body is determined by you know clothing on on the body, and so uh, 
you know, I, I couldn't believe that they got away with that explanation. Right. I mean, you know, dumb, and incidentally, the limbs frequently fell off when they hit the ground, as you can imagine, make, being made out of wood. Uh, and that's somehow going to get people to think they're aliens? Right. <laughs> that's ludicrous. Yeah, like I said, it goes back to that that thing I was uh, I was lamenting about the possible Bill Moore Doty question. You know, where it's like all it takes is one ridiculous uh, answer to get out there, and it's hard to get it out of the out of the minds of these people. So it's a uh, it's always a challenge. Well, remember the the basic thing is it can't be, therefore it isn't. So there must be an explanation. If one doesn't work, try number two, and if that doesn't work, try number three, and so forth. There is a mindset, and someday some psychiatry or psychologist grad students should do a paper on the will not to believe in flying saucers. What is it that makes the person so unwilling to consider the evidence and so willing to jump to conclusions? Uh, There's a a new disease out there waiting for a name. Anti-UFOitis? No. (laughs) That's too awkward. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this before on the show. I wonder, uh, there's a psychological thing to it for sure. Uh, Bernie Mooney asks or says or states, I don't even know, he says, why won't he go beyond nuts and bolts? So why won't you go on, why won't you go beyond nuts and bolts? Well, I'm not quite sure what he means because after all, I have said on many occasions that I'd be astonished if aliens weren't well ahead of us in a number of I'll call it paranormal fields. They use telepathy. Uh, I, they can move through walls, which is a pretty neat trick. I, uh, they probably know a lot about uh, reincarnation and other interesting things like that. So I'm not saying that it's just nuts and bolts and that's the end of it. I'm saying that I would be astonished if that were the end of it, that... Uh, we certainly know uh, the telepathy part of it, and most of the good abduction cases, it's clear that telepathy is being used. And I realize that, uh, quote, organized science, unquote, uh, frequently says, ain't nothing to that, folks. Uh, it, you know, new ideas get a rough time. And unless I can put a, a, a person in front of the United Nations who reads the minds of the politicians there, and boy, would they hate that, uh, you know, how do I demonstrate it? Right, right. Uh, I'm sure the aliens don't care what we think they're up to. Yeah, yeah. All right. I think that, that covers that one. We're, we're, we got a good pace going here, man. We're doing really well. Uh, and now we hit a speed bump because Will Affleck, uh, I chastised him at first because he asked two questions, but then they were both so good uh, that I was like, well, I'm going to have to ask these both because uh, now I want to know the answer. So he, uh, the first question is, what is your opinion on the crypto-terrestrial theory? If you can believe that beings can travel across space and time, do you think it's possible that beings different from us could be living in secret here on the Earth? Well, asking what's possible is one of those sticky, wicked sort of questions. Mm. How do I know what's possible? If you'd ask the best scientists in the world who weren't involved in the program, the notion of an atomic bomb would have been thought to be absurd. Uh, you know, it's such a jump from where we were, uh, chemistry versus, I mean, versus physics, if you will. Yeah. So I can't say ain't nobody hiding on this planet. 
uh, every so often, don't we hear about a new society being found, some native tribe somewhere, stuff like that. And I'm certainly we're going to be finding more about past civilizations on our planet. We haven't dug much of the planet up very deeply, you know. Mm. Uh, so uh, from that viewpoint, uh, I can't say that there haven't been civilizations on our planet who were uh, more advanced than the Neanderthals or, you know, others we tend to think went before. Right. I, I think we're, we got a lot to find out about the past of the planet. And I always think about the guy uh, who found the city of Troy. Uh, he had to pay guys to dig down 75 feet. Yeah. And it was there. Now, how much of the planet have we explored 75 feet? And all the historians said, no, if there had been a Troy, we would have known about it, we smart historians. <laughs> well, you know, we hadn't discovered it yet, so it can't be real. Uh, I have to always leave room for that which we don't know. I mean, and people have said uh, the, the same applies to the business of technology. Now, I talk about fusion for deep space travel. Why? Because a properly designed fusion rocket can kick particles out the back that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. 10 million is a pretty big jump. Hmm. But do I think that's the end of the line, even though most of the energy in the universe is produced by fusion? That's what goes on in all the stars. My answer is no. We may someday take the next step to dig inside a quark. Uh, you know, it's crazy. When you go from a big fat atom down to a little tiny nucleus, you go down in size by a factor of a thousands and up in energy by ten thousands per particle. That is intuitively crazy, but that's the way it is. So when we find out how to dig inside the quark, I don't know how to do that, uh, we may again find you've gone down in size and up in energy. But I don't know how to do that, so I, you know, I don't suggest that's what's going on. But fusion will do it well enough. Hmm. But there's plenty we don't know. Progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. One thing I can predict uh, hopefully the next generation won't be as arrogant about our special status. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, well, there's only one solar system, isn't there? Uh, if there were more, we'd know about it. Yeah. Uh, well, that was the attitude. And now the general consensus, and I ask astronomers about this, uh, is that uh, on the average there's one planet per star. Some have nine like us, some may have none, but think of what that means. A simple number, within 100 light years is about 10,000 stars. That means about 10,000 planets. Hmm. So I get really irked when somebody says, well, you've got to go vast distances, thousands of light years before you find anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why? I mean, that makes no sense to me at all. Uh, so... You know, I'm accustomed to finding things that don't make any sense, even from guys with piled higher and deeper uh, degrees after their name. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's exciting in a way, too. Uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but it has nothing to do with the uh, the crypto-terrestrial question. But it, uh, I'm sure I remember talking to you in years past on these holiday specials, how excited you were about the Kepler thing. And it's getting more exciting to seeing all this stuff that, you know, 
that they're yeah. finding. It's a, you know, this alien megastructure, I know it didn't really turn out to be anything of significance, but it's sort of a tantalizing uh, idea yeah. of what might come next. Yeah, well, I expect there to be surprises. Anybody who thinks we've learned all there is to know is crazy. I mean, it makes no sense. Hmm. Not if you look at the last hundred years. And, of course, uh, put in a plug for science was wrong. There are 14 chapters in that book, each one stimulated by some very smart guy saying something stupid about something being impossible. Yeah. And we've got a long history here. <laughs> stupid statements by smart people. <laughs> Um, okay, the next question, this also, again, comes from Will Affleck, but actually uh, this, the following question from Susan Fairhurst is pretty much the same thing, so we're going to maybe try and combine these into one. Uh, he says, what's your opinion of the obvious similarities between modern-day alien encounters and the encounters of fairy folk and entities of mankind's past and folklore? And then just to jump to Susan's question, she says, Jacques Vallée's book, Wonders in the Sky, catalogs thousands of years of interactions between humans and ETs. So we're kind of covering the same thing here. Please ask Stan his opinion as to why these interactions are remarkably consistent over such long periods of time. So remarkably consistent questions as well. Uh, so well, what's that might thought? mean that they're, they're true. Uh, you know, people are seeing strange beings. I've often felt that uh, we have a tendency to look elsewhere to things. It's easy to say we're dealing with fairies than with aliens uh, up until recently because whoever talked about aliens you know they're mm. they're, they're not real what, what kind of craziness is that uh you know it, it's kind of like uh, the astronomer royal saying only kooks see ufos what a nonsensical thing uh, not based on any data he doesn't cite any polls or any no evidence whatsoever so uh i i think it may well be the other way around, that is to say, that it's been sightings of uh, alien beings that cause people to talk about uh, fairies and all this kind of stuff. Because it was easier to deal with that than with the notion of alien visitors. Uh, you know, uh, I was at a conference once where a couple from University of Delaware gave a talk about 11 different ancient old societies where there were still people around that spoke the language or whatever. And all of them, without exception, had stories about beings coming down from the sky in, I'll call it craft, for want of a better term. A yeah. Physical object, you know. Not angels flying their wings or anything like that. <laughs> 11 different civilizations. And that's got to mean something. Right. Uh, you know, so the stories have been around. So, you know, Earth is a nice place to visit if you uh, have got the time to stop by. And, you know, uh, people forget it is conceivable that there's bases on the backside of the moon or within our solar system that there are guys coming back. And it's also conceivable that they've been mining goodies here. Look at all these reports of... Uh, what, unidentified submerged objects, USOs? Oh, exactly, yeah. We don't even know what's in the ocean, really, so they could be yeah, there. and we know that there are nodules of different metals and that there are diamonds that are washed and, uh, washed and down from Africa. And uh, so they could be doing, you know, people travel. Uh, but there were, I think, 100,000 people sent 
set out for California when the gold rush happened. Most of them didn't get there, but you know, it was kind of a there weren't any planes to catch. Right. Uh, and the same with Alaska. It must have been a terribly d- difficult task for the the guys who went to Alaska back at the end of the 19th century. Uh, you know, their motivation was different from the notion that, oh, if they're going to come here, they're going to want to land on the White House lawn and talk to the president. What? <laughs> you know, that's not... Why did guys cross the ocean? Well, some of them, because uh, they thought there was gold that they could steal, and they found a lot of it, as a matter of fact, and they did steal it. Uh you know, uh, look at all the guys who were vegetarians. I mean, they brought back vegetables, potatoes. <laughs> they also brought back tobacco. Uh, you know, there are reasons for people to do things be- besides the obvious. Right, right. Okay, uh, our mutual friend Lauren Coleman has a question for you uh, on the special. Star-studded, uh, star-studded list of questioners here uh, tonight. He says, I've had the pleasure of spending quiet meals alone with Stan as he told me touching stories beyond ufology about his life, his loves, his family, his children. Happy and sad memories. I forgot to ask him and wonder if you had time, if you might add this one to your list. Are you, Stan, or a relative writing an autobiography or biography about your full journey on this planet Earth? Well, not exactly. Uh... (laughs) I say that because the movie rights to uh, Top Secret Magic and Captured have been sold. Right. The movies have been optioned. That doesn't mean they'll get made, but uh, on Top Secret Magic, part of that was my personal history is covered. Hmm. I can't go off and write a book on my personal history without that violating that stuff. Ah. But uh, someday I might. Uh, it, it's been an interesting life, and uh, I've got family to be concerned about, and you know what, what? What do they want their dad to be saying and stuff like that? And yeah. uh, uh, so you have to think about other people, uh, especially my wife, and she's a very private person. So uh, there are incidents, there are interesting times, and. Uh, one of the things that I think is important, though, is, is a theme that is you don't stop working just because you turn 65. Hmm. Uh, I think one reason I surprise people by still having energy to do the things I do uh, <laughs> is because I've kept busy. And I think there's a moral to that story. Uh, don't sit back on your laurels. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. As long as you can function and, you know, people want to pay you for functioning, then you should. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think a lot of human ills, uh, physical disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, are the result of just not keeping the system moving. Yeah, yeah. That makes Being sense. Lazy. Yeah. You still going to the gym? No. When I had the heart attack, the doctor said, oh. stop it. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I told you last time, you made me feel terrible. Because <laughs> if you're going to the gym more than I am, that says... <laughs> I'm not walking as much as I should. The doctor does want me to walk. Well, that's good. All right. Well, we, we'll get on that. i gotta get, I got to get active myself. So, 
Steve Groan asks, and I thank you to Lauren for taking care of my annual plea for the uh, for the biography. Steve Groan asks for your thoughts on British hacker uh, Gary McKinnon and his story about a U.S. space fleet. Well, I don't know what to make of what he saw. Uh, you know, and I'm so glad that the Brits refused to. What's that word? Extradite. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess it would be extradite. No. Uh, <laughs> and I'm glad that they didn't let him be extradited. Uh, you know, he was wandering around in the files. That means that the government people ought to be more careful, is all I can say. <laughs> Do a better job to keep people out if they really want to stay. Uh, you know, part of that is arrogance. When you work on classified stuff, there are times when people get to feel, well, this is so classified, nobody else will know about this or can get in on this or so forth. And arrogance is the the enemy of good sense, you know, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And it's part of our society thing that uh, if there were anybody out there, we would know about it, that same kind of arrogance. Yeah, and yeah. The book that I mentioned, the, these 14 chapters, much of the stupidity that came out of of people saying space travel is utter build, said the British astronomer Royal one year before Sputnik. Uh, man will never fly in a, any distance in a vehicle, said the greatest astronomer of the 19th century, Simon right. Newcomb. Two months before the Wright brothers' first flight. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so arrogance gets in the way, unfortunately. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that Gary McKinnon story, that's a tough one because, uh, I, I interviewed him way back on the first season Did of the show. Yes, yes, back in the first season of the show, but while he was still under all the, all the, uh, the cloud of all that. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really come out of it too sold on things. You know, I asked him for some specifics because I felt like there weren't enough, you know, like with the Serpo story, you at least have the Serpo to hang your hat on, you know. It's like, do you have anything yeah. we can, we can dig into, you know, FOIA names, thing, any names, you know? And he didn't have any names or anything. So it was like, to me, at that point, the, the, the trail stops cold because he can't do anything else with it. I agree with you. It can be very frustrating. So he very well may be telling the truth, but he didn't bring anything back out of the thing except for anecdotal yeah. stuff that I can't do anything with. I don't think anyone else can. So, Right. Uh, Frank Spink, he wants to know if I haven't asked you already, which I don't think I have. Uh, what are your views, Stan, on the deathbed confession of Boyd Bushman? I, I'm not sure I'd even elevate that to my gray basket. I've spoken, I, I'd spoken to him a couple of times, and I don't know what to make out of it. Uh, again, the absence of specific things you could check on. That, that, that's what's so frustrating. You know, stories may be true, but if you don't have any evidence for them, um, where do you go from there? Right. So, uh, I'm sorry. I wish I could say, oh, he sounds like a great guy and he must be telling the truth. I know there are people in the field who think they can tell who's telling the truth just by listening to them. <laughs> I know I can't. Uh, I doubt a few can. You may try, but, you know, I, to me it's the evidence that's required. Right. And it's, it's, that's the argument about uh, MJ-12. I get all these people making these claims of impossibility, but who, who won't go to an archive. I had somebody tell me every top-secret document have to have a top-secret 
code word on it. Well, I talked to archivists. Not true at all. Right. And I had even published a couple before that that I'd gotten copies of stuff that had been declassified. And there were no toxic control numbers, the word I meant. Uh, and I get other people telling me similar, obviously false claims. And so I'm very wary of people who can't document. Uh, you know, the, the date format is wrong on some of the documents. Right. What do you mean wrong? You think everybody had, I had one, believe it or not, I had one file folder at uh, the Eisenhower Library that had seven different date formats in it. Weird. Depends on who typed it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, people did use typewriters back then, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So no, no, uh, you don't, you don't put much stock in, in the Boyd Bushman story. See, I had no idea. I, sometimes I love these questions because they come up and I, Cover, they cover stuff that I didn't even know about. So, yeah, not he's not high on my list of believable ones. Yeah, you're putting me in a hell of a position here, but I, I have no choice. You're not going to kill Santa Claus because he doesn't exist. <laughs> really, Brian, he doesn't exist. That's right, he's not real. Oh, interesting, interesting theory, Brian. Um, who else isn't real? Hmm? You going to tell me that Elmo isn't real? Huh? SpongeBob? Is he not real, Brian? Is, is, is SpongeBob not there at the bottom of the ocean giving squid with the business? Hmm? And, and what about Curious George? Huh? Does he not really exist? Hmm? Is Curious George not really out there making little boats out of newspapers that he should be delivering? Huh? Educate yourself, you fool. This just in, Santa Claus is dead. It's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special featuring... Stanton Friedman. Happy holidays. It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we smile a little easier, we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. Alex Pannon wants to know, would you cons uh, what would you consider to be the most quintessential book on the topic of ufology? And uh, I'm going to answer Alex's question right now, because that is, of course, Flying Saucers and Science. That's the quintessential book on the topic of ufology. But I know Stan won't say that, so Stan, what? Well, I was <laughs> trying to think of what, what I did want to say, uh, and... Uh, I'm certainly proud of uh, that book and of Captured. Kathleen Martin did 85% uh, of the work on Captured, so i got to give her the credit. But both books try to make a point of going after evidence. You know, not just making claims, but demonstrating that that's true. Uh, and... It's, it's too darn hard to find a lot of stuff like that. There isn't much. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I uh, Some of the encyclopedias are, are have a lot of information. Uh, Jerry Clark's work, I don't always agree with him, but it put an awful lot of stuff in one place. Wow. Mm. You know, comprehensive as can be. Um and that's useful because one of the things that's missing for most people is they have no idea of the extent of the work that's out there. Yeah. And uh, they should. 
I'll have to think about that. Yeah, that's I a mean, tough one. Yeah. I'll give a shout out to uh Firestorm by Ann Druffel. That's outstanding. Yeah, oh yes, I would say that is an outstanding book. And I, because I knew Jim McDonald, I was worried when Ann's book uh, came out the, the whole business about Jim's death. Mm. Because I had talked to his daughter afterward and his wife. And I was wondering how she would handle that and I thought she did a great job on it. Yeah. And uh yeah, so I, that certainly is biographies of ufologists. That's really special. Uh, John Fuller's books, Incident at Exeter and uh, Interrupted Journey, were well-done books. John dug into them. Hmm. And I didn't run across stuff where I said, oh, that's nonsense, or that couldn't be, or why didn't he do this or that. So, but he was a real journalist. There aren't too many of them in the field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, let me let me take a side tangent and ask you what. So, I guess I feel like we've talked about this on the show before, but I don't recall it off the top of my head. And if I if I haven't, then I'll be mad that I didn't ask now. So, what's your what's your take on the death of McDonald then? Well, okay, I believe from talking to his wife, from talking to his daughter. And this is, these are not questions I would normally have asked anybody. Right. They're, they're personal. But I had calls from several people telling me, Stan, they got Jim. They're going to go after you next. Right, exactly. Yeah, if anyone, yeah, if anyone should be concerned about ufologists being murdered, it would be you. So you get a pass for looking into so, it, I think. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I did. I talked to a colleague of his at the university. I talked to his daughter. They found his notes. Uh, you know, he first succeeded in blinding himself. Mm, yeah. Then he made plans to go out. Uh, it's easy to get a gun. No kidding. <laughs> Living in Canada, I have to say, any place in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Handguns. But he went, uh, he walked down the street in Tucson, and you can find guns easily. Took a taxi out and uh, got a gun and went out to the desert and finished the job. Yeah. And I, I have, because of talking to his wife and his daughter uh, and a colleague, I, I just had no reason not to buy that story. Right, right. Jim had, I, I knew Jim. I had met him when he visited Pittsburgh several times. Uh, I'm very favorably impressed with him. But he did have a depression problem and his wife had said something about there being another man they they had she's younger than he was and uh you know th there were problems yeah family problems yeah do you think yeah, the, and then with phil class doing his that's, nasty, yeah that's what i'm gonna ask you act yeah. yeah phil did everything unethical of course but that was phil uh to get him to lose his funding for his Navy research stuff, and uh, you know, I wish if anybody's listening who has any way to link Phil to the CIA or somebody like that, uh, I'd sure like to hear about it. Yeah. Because uh, I know, well, people, maybe people are too young, but back in the 70s, way back when, the Church Committee report came out, and a uh, congressman, and... Uh, it turned out there were hundreds of journalists who were working for the CIA. Yeah. And there was a lot of fuss about that. Now, some of the uh, time life was proud of that. We're doing their 
fit for the country, you know, Cold War and all that sort of stuff. But I found out that the editor of Aviation Week and Space Technology, where Phil worked, uh, had found out that one of his journalists had a connection with the CIA and was fired because of it. Huh. So I think Phil would have been very careful. Right. And right. people who are wondering, oh, why would he think he was, uh, you know, a, a bad guy <laughs> working for the government? Well, he traveled lots to Europe. If you look at his notes, I've seen his papers at the, the, um, the archives in Philadelphia, the American Philosophical Society uh, Library, his papers are there, and he traveled all over a great deal. He wasn't married until he was 60, and then only to avoid a debate with me. <laughs> we had one scheduled in New York, and he got married instead. What? Uh, honest to God. That's bizarre. Well, yeah, Bobby Schaefer took his place. We were at some conference in New York and did a debate. That's uh, crazy. Well, uh, it, it, yeah, what what I'm saying is he, he was a bachelor who could travel a lot. He right. had the right connections to get into conferences. And, frankly, if I were ahead of an intelligence agency, I'd love to have him on my side. He was a fast typist and writer. He could go places a lot of other people couldn't. You know, he could tell what the Russians were saying that was interesting and what our guys were saying that they shouldn't have been saying. And I say that because when I was visiting the Blue Book files, uh, when I, I had a little contract with uh, Foreign Technology Division of the Air Force, which is the same place Blue Book was at, and I, I was looking at Soviet technology for building small nuclear reactors, and every once in a while you'd run across a, what do I call it, just a report from a businessman or an engineer or somebody who had been at a conference and picked up some information. Hmm. So they were looking for bits and pieces. They contacted people who traveled, and I don't blame them for doing that. The Cold War was on. Hey, what were the Russians talking about at this conference that you were at? So... It's not unknown, in other words, for us to try to take advantage of the knowledge and capabilities of people who travel to places where interesting things might be said. Hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, it makes a perfect spot. Yeah, and and so I'm I'm don't say these things to, to discount Phil. I certainly don't approve of his methodology, and he was a nasty guy, and not only about Jim McDonald, but about several other people. Did, did you? Anybody can get his FBI file off the internet, Philip Class uh, FBI file, and the things he said about Heineck were really nasty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, telling the FBI that Heineck wasn't a scientist and blah, 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 and the FBI got back to him saying, uh, you know, we, we trust Heineck, we don't trust you, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I didn't find out about it until years later, but he had written a letter when he found out that I was moving to Canada to uh, the people who were handling UFO stuff at the, uh, in Ottawa. And he was really nasty about me. I don't know if you've seen that letter. I think I've seen it, yeah. I remember. I think I think, I think, I think uh, come out Richard like Dolan. A, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing it, yeah. Yeah, he found it. Uh, he thought I knew about it. I didn't know about it. It was in the Canadian files, and I'd been there, but well before that. Yeah. And uh, found his letter telling them that... Uh, they were going to have the privilege of having somebody who would say that they were covering things up and blah, blah, blah. And 
he speaks to junior colleges, and there's so much wrong with what he says, it would take me hours to put it down, so we didn't put down any of it. <laughs> <laughs> clever, clever. So uh, what I'm saying is he has a demonstrated record of uh, not playing it straight. That's Yeah, that's putting it lightly. Uh, Jim Vujovich asks, Stan, have you looked at or formed an opinion, this is a deeply technical one in a sense, uh, about John Brandenburg's work suggesting two massive nuclear explosions on Mars based on xenon-129 isotopes and radioactive potassium and thorium on the Martian surface? Essentially, is the idea of a weapons signature found on Mars reasonable? Yeah, uh... I know Brandenburg, and I looked at his paper, and uh, I was quite favorably impressed. It seemed to me to be objective and careful. And, you know, one of the crazy things about the nuclear world, there are certain isotopes that it's pretty hard to produce in any other way but uh, fission hmm. or fusion or, you know, explosions. Uh, that, that's one of the things I tell people about aliens coming here. They would know that we've exploded loads of nuclear weapons because there's, there, there's signatures left. Right, right. So, but remember now, he's talking about quite some time back. Yeah, of those explosions. Right, right, he, right. He, he's not saying that that was a recent event. Yeah, exactly. He's like suggesting maybe that was uh, what what went wrong on Mars, essentially. Well, yeah, and I it, it wouldn't surprise me uh, if there have been past visitations to the solar system, and again, especially with that new with the Kepler data indicating that there might be. 10,000 planets within 100 light years. Uh, you know, that, that's an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. And that there might be colonization, migration, etc. And so, uh, look at how things change. Go back a thousand years, you couldn't find a New York, could you? Or Chicago, or San Francisco, or, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I leave room for that. I, I would like to see more work done, but I don't know how to go up there and get a sample. So, you know. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I thought look. it was a nice piece of work. It's uh, interesting. I hadn't heard of it till now, so it's uh, it makes a lot John of sense. John Brandenburg, and uh, he did a lot of looking, and, uh, you know, <laughs> Who knows? Maybe somebody was testing their nuclear weapons there because there ain't nobody here, so they won't mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's possible, too. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Well, you know, uh, we obliterated an island with our first <laughs> fusion device. Uh, not too many people there, we hoped. We got the, rid of the people who were there. We moved them uh, elsewhere. So <laughs> well, what I'm saying is when when you don't know the full circumstances, you got to allow room for a lot of things that may seem odd until you think about, well, that's not so strange after all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jim has sort of a follow-up question, and I'm interested in your thoughts, too. Uh, what do you think about manned missions to Mars? You think, uh, what's your overall thoughts on that? Seems like it's an eventuality, I guess, but uh, it's a Well, I'll wild. tell you, when I was working on a space program in the 60s, I and everybody else I worked with thought that before the end of the century there would have been a trip to Mars. Right. Uh, that we'd have a colony on the moon for sure by the end of the century and not too long before a trip to Mars. And partly because I knew, because I worked on nuclear rocket engines, that if you used a nuclear rocket for an upper stage, fission nuclear rocket, uh, that you could double or triple the payload there. 
Now, this is not a launch vehicle from the Earth. It's an upper stage. Right. Uh, and we, well, Aerojet General, Los Alamos uh, Scientific Laboratory, and Westinghouse Astro Nuclear Lab, where I worked, uh, all three tested successfully nuclear rocket engines. Uh, power levels 1,100 and 4,400 megawatts. Now, Hoover Dam produces 2,200 megawatts. And it's a big old monster. Hmm. These things were all less than eight feet in diameter. And they operated successfully out at the nuclear test site outside Las Vegas. So if you've got a choice, I mean, we want a submarine that can go around the world underwater? Well, a diesel engine, you can stay underwater for about a day because the diesels need air. Right. Uh, Nuclear, uh, way back in 1960, uh, the Triton nuclear submarine went around the world underwater in 60 days. But it was nuclear powered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, uh, technology is the kind of technology I have available is very important. I have a feeling I wouldn't know this by now, but when you were, this is my own question, when you were, te- when they were testing these rockets and stuff, were you at like a base, like an Area 51, or did they just take them and test them themselves, or or like how did that how did that there all was work? The nuclear test site. Uh, he said outside of Vegas, so I'm like, oh wait, maybe yeah. Sam was hanging around Area 51. No one bothered to ask him yet. No, near Jackass Flats, Nevada. If that tells you anything, <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a good sized facility. You can only you only want to do this. The, the nuclear rocket engines release uh, the radiation levels are high when they're being operated. Yeah. So you don't stand around uh, looking, uh, you know, hey, yeah. look at that. Kicking the tires, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's a controlled area. Uh, you can't get It's not far from Area 51, but it isn't part of the same thing. It's, it's a place where they had tested nuclear uh, bombs, weapons, uh, out at the nuclear test site. And these are all mounted on railroad cars. And so they can be moved back remotely to the uh, disassembly building, assembly and disassembly, of course. Yeah. Uh, and you, you you handle a lot of stuff remotely once they've operated because they're quite radioactive at that time. Mm. Okay. And the limit on the test, incidentally, was how much liquid hydrogen you could store because the longer the test went, the more radioactive the system becomes. And you have to have coolant for after cooling. And so <laughs> it was funny when we were listening to our system, 1100 megawatts, NRX A6, Westinghouse. We were listening to the test from uh, in Pittsburgh. You know, they piped it in from out there. Right. And we were trying to figure out how long is it going to run. Maybe the fuel elements will start coming out after five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> The concern, incidentally, uh, the exhaust temperature of the hydrogen is 4,400 degrees or so. Oh, wow. Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. That's pretty darn hot. So we're not accustomed to operating too many things at those kinds of temperatures. <laughs> yeah. I mean, jet engines, you know, 2,000 degrees is pretty good. But so we're listening, and they, you know, five minutes nominal temperature pressure, et cetera, 10 minutes, and hey, hey, this is looking good. The limit was 60 because of this need for after cooling. Right. And, 
uh, we had no idea whether we'd get there. And so it was with great relief. I had some experiments on that system. And uh, also I had been asked about uh, the heating, the nuclear heating in the control vanes on the reactor. And the, <laughs> the guy comes to me from that department. Uh, is there any way you can find out what the heating rates are there? Because we don't want to melt the control vanes, Stan, you know. <laughs> <laughs> A good thing not to do. <laughs> and we also don't want to waste too much coolant to do that instead of get it through the reactor, you know. Yeah. So I worked with our guy. We had a facility we could use 20 miles from where I worked, and uh, uh, we ran some tests uh, very quickly and uh, got some data. That looked, we were okay. We weren't going to melt anything. But frankly, uh, I was worried. What if we were wrong? So if anything went wrong with the darn thing, they might blame it on me. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, so it was a great time, as technical experiences go, to have that success be so successful. Yeah. I mean, uh, everything went. And, and it gives you an appreciation for the crazy world in which we live that whoever talks about things operating at 4,000 degrees, you know, <laughs> That, that's ridiculous. The submarine reactor is 1,100 or so. Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, the nuclear rockets were tested out there, and I was surprised. I was in a panel uh, near the uh, Cape Canaveral, uh, and uh, the NASA guy that was on the panel, this is before two, the year 2000, was telling me that... Uh, they were seriously thinking about using nuclear rocket engines for the upper stages. And I thought, gee, that's great. And that's, what, 17 or so years ago. Right, exactly. <laughs> it hasn't happened. But they canceled the program, and that's the history. Uh, all three of those programs were successful, and they were all canceled. Very strange. That whole story, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about that quite yeah. a bit on the show here over the years. It's very weird. Uh, you know, maybe the aliens said, stay the hell off our moon <laughs> yeah know. yeah i don't know who knows uh all right back to the questions brandon white asks this is a bit of a silly one so uh we'll forgive you if you kind of just uh give it a silly response he's saying you're having a paranormal thanksgiving dinner who do you invite paranormal thanksgiving dinner does that mean an imaginary turkey I have no idea what. Yeah, I have no idea what a paranormal Thanksgiving dinner would entail. <laughs> there are some outstanding ufologists out there, and uh, I'm pleased that I know some of them. Uh, my writing colleague Kathleen Martin is one who's doing a great job on UFO abductions. Uh, she heads the MUFON group working on abductions. Uh, she's Betty Hill's niece. Yeah. So. She knew about that the day after it happened. Didn't know about the abduction part, but knew about the experience. Right, right. Um, uh, John uh, Grunewald. Uh, oh, yeah, Project uh, Black Ball, yeah. Black Vault, yes. yes. Uh, you know, so there are other people like that around. Uh, I would invite them. Uh I'll have to think about that. Yeah, that's a, like I said, that's a that's an odd one. So, uh, all right, we'll go to the next one. Well, there are more uh, more this one. This one also is a bit confusing because I have no idea what he's talking about. So, if you don't either, then uh, we're fine. 
He says, uh, David Hodson asks, first he asks me if I've had Professor Jackson on regarding E.T. abduction. He scared the living crap out of me. Could you ask Stan's opinion? So I have no idea. I asked him who. Didn't get a response. So a, a mysterious Professor Jackson regarding E.T. abduction. Do you know anything about anything like that? Well, no, I don't, although I have the vague recollection that I might have seen his name on something and wondered who who it was. It might have been that question. <laughs> He didn't give you a first name, did he? No, and I asked for, you know, I asked for follow-up, and you never get him on these, so, yeah, so we can, you know. Sorry. Yeah, we'll revisit it next year, uh, David. you gotta, you got to give us more than that. Kimberly Reck wants to know, do you believe in secret underground bases like Dulce? Uh, okay, I do believe in secret underground bases. Uh, again, this is a Cold War phenomenon. I... Uh, when it became obvious that two things, that there would be long-distance rockets with nuclear warheads and that uh, spy satellites would be around, building underground bases made sense right. to stay away from many nuclear explosions and to stay away from the satellites. Uh and people wonder, you know, Area 51 or any place else, there are plenty of underground bases. Some are for politicians, you know, uh, if there's a war. But again, we've forgotten what things were like during the Cold War. Uh, you know, I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, uh, you know, I was concerned. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that this could escalate. I mean, I, I give... Kennedy and Khrushchev credit. Uh, they decided wisely not to escalate it, you know. Uh, but it, what I'm saying is it's not ridiculous when each side spent tons of money building ICBMs and putting nuclear warheads on them and then building spy satellites, lots of them. Underground bases make sense. Okay. Uh, Jim Sapp says, and I, I, I gave him shit about this because I figured uh, this was, this is such a broad question that uh, we only have Stan for so much time, Jim. He, <laughs> he says, Dear Stanton, you're the man. What should we researchers do? What topic, where to look, and how to present the info we find? So, you know, I don't even go wherever you want with that one. Well, okay, I'm a firm believer when it comes to documents. <laughs> go to the darn archives. And as an example, that bothered me back to MJ-12. Uh, there were several people who complained when I talked about Donald Menzel led a double life. Uh, you know, for people who aren't aware, there's this list of people who were supposedly on this Operation Majestic 12 set up by President Truman in 1947. And one of the people... All the other ones made sense, former directors of central intelligence, uh, generals, admirals, that sort of thing, and, and five, a bunch of scientists. Uh, but Donald Menzel, he wrote three anti-UFO books <laughs> yeah, and gave all kinds of talks saying it's a bunch of malarkey. How could he be a member of a group that knew there was a crash saucer at Roswell and alien bodies and so forth? And so uh, I pointed out that I had permission from three different people to look at his papers at Harvard. All these guys were dead, which is very convenient, but <laughs> there's, there's nobody to ask directly. And uh, I was astonished at what I found after getting those permissions, that uh, he writes Jack Kennedy that he had a 
longer continuous association with the NSA, National Security Agency, of anybody in the country. <laughs> and there was a hearing that you didn't find in the New York Times or the Washington Post about the Air Force trying to take away his security clearance. He was disloyal, they yeah. said. This is 1950, you know, McCarthy era. Why was he disloyal? Well, he led an eclipse expedition to Siberia, for goodness sakes, and at an American-Russian friendship dinner in 1942, he said nice things about the Russians. When everybody was saying nice things about the Russians, because thank goodness they kept the Germans busy, (laughs) you know, Leningrad and so forth. Yeah. And yet, I've had a number of people complain, oh, that couldn't have been Stan. You know, he couldn't lead a double life. But not one of those people went to the archives to check on the stuff I was talking about. Uh, so I, I think number one is find out what you can. Don't take anything for granted. All kinds of, and I found archivists are really helpful. You know, you make business for them. I, I know it's true, but still, uh, people saying this top secret control words, uh, the MJ-12 documents again. Can't be real because all top secret documents have to have control numbers on them. Well, I checked with uh, two different archivists at two different archives, and no, we have loads of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Top secret documents that don't have control. For anybody who's wondering, well, how come? It's fairly straightforward. If you have a 10-page document that's going to 10 people, then you have a classified document. They are inventoried. Everybody has to, it has to be known where each issue, each one of those ten copies is, who has it. And on the other hand, if you got General A wants to send a memo to General B and it's classified, you put it in the classified data and the courier takes it and goes from his office to the other guy's office. They don't want to go through all the rigmarole or getting things numbered and so forth. Right. So I, I, I mention that only because I've had people say, what do you mean? Don't they have to? No. You know, <laughs> there, there are rules. Okay, you follow the rules. Uh, also, I did something that I'm surprised other people haven't done it, just to give an example uh, about MJ-12 again. I asked the people at the Truman Library, if there were any people, this is several years ago, uh, any people still alive who were there in at the time of the documents, let's say from 47 through the Cutler 20, number 53 in that time frame. And I was told uh, that there was a guy there. Uh, suddenly his name has popped out of my head entirely, but I'll think of it. Anyway, uh, he's still alive, and so I called phone and telephone information, found him, talked to him, asked, would it be okay if he was in, in working with Truman the whole time Truman was in the White House? So that's an insider, if uh-huh. you will. And uh, I said, is it okay if I send you these documents? I don't know whether they're legitimate or not, but you were there at the time, and I would value your comments. Sure, why not? Uh, so I sent him the stuff, and then just before I call him on the follow-up, I realize if he knows something, he can't tell me. Arr, i got to ask my questions in crazy ways, like, uh, did you see any reason to think the documents were fraudulent? Yeah. I didn't say whether they were genuine or not. That's a right, different. Right. You know, and so, anyway, I, it, it was great to talk to him because, uh, for example, there's the famous, infamous, 
intertwining memo. It's just a brief memo, but it mentions uh, MJ-12. Uh, and the uh, Cutler uh, was the, I'll call him the security advisor. There's a slightly different title, but that's good enough for uh, Eisenhower. And James Lay was the executive secretary of the National uh, Security Council. Not agency. Council. Right. And so I asked about, uh, I think that this memo, which wasn't signed by Bobby Cutler, and of course that means people said it was a fraud, uh, I said, and he wasn't there at the time, but he left instructions by going to the archive. I found a memo that said he left instructions to James Lay and other guys, keep things moving out of my in-basket while I'm in Europe. Hmm. So when I went to the uh, archives, I it took me a year and a half to get it, but I found a memo that was listed by date and stuff that ought to be interesting, and I managed to get it. So I asked the guy I was talking to, who wound up uh, heading the American Red Cross, incidentally, a uh, sharp guy, uh, George, oh, well, E. That's right. his last name, Easley. It's not Easley. It's close to that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, I asked him, and he was able to tell me, well, Bobby Cutler and the James Lay of the NSC sat next to each other at all the meetings of the NSC. They each got copies of everything the other guy wrote. Right. And I pointed out that I had checked at the archive, and James Lay met with President Eisenhower uh, in the morning, and it was a phone conversation in the afternoon with that little memo that mentions MJ-12. I said, well, could Lay have prepared that for Cutler? He said, oh, of course. Huh. Uh, it, it was just a change in the time of the meeting. It's going to take place after a meeting instead of during right. a meeting or the other way around. Yeah. And so to talk, George L.C., that's his name. Hey, <laughs> oh, nice. E-L-S-E-Y. And... Uh, so I, we, we had a long conversation, and it was extremely helpful to me to get a better understanding of what went on on a day-to-day basis. I asked him, for example, could uh, one of the memos have been typed someplace uh, else other than Truman's office? He said, well, sure, most of what the president signs is prepared elsewhere. Well, it's nice coming from a guy who was there. I asked him, you saw that list of people, yes, who were on MJ-12, do you have any reason to believe that if something like a crash saucer had occurred, that Truman wouldn't have appointed that guy because he didn't trust him or, you know, didn't think much of him or whatever? And he said, no, they're all the right kind of people. And he walked in on Truman berating a senator about security matters, for example. <laughs> Well, you know, so Truman was was a bug on security and stuff. Right. Well, what I'm saying is, to get to the answer of the question, it isn't just sitting back and expressing an opinion. Well, that doesn't seem too smart to me, or this. Get the facts. Exactly. If you're going to do research, get the facts. And sometimes you've got to go looking, but it's worth it. Okay, let's see what we got here. Okay, Carl DeMarco, we're on the subject of uh, the of the uh, MJ-12 documents. This is a good one here. We can kind of wrap that one up. He he says he hopes you have a great holiday season, however you celebrate it. And he says, Dr. Michael Heiser is a big fan and admirer of yours, and uh, Carl is a fan of both of you guys. 
Dr. Heiser is very unique in that he maintains a Christian worldview while maintaining an interest yeah. and belief in UFOs, and like you, is rigorous and scientific in his approach. Sorry, he wrote a long one here, so it's, you know. He, here's the question. He once had a forensic linguistic analysis done on some MJ-12 documents that led to controversial results in the UFO community, to put it mildly. To keep the question as short as possible, eight of the 17 documents tested were shown to have the same author, which in every case was not the attributed author previously accepted. Heiser concludes that, therefore, they must be forgeries. However, although the author appears to be different than the attributed one, could it mean that some person, perhaps a staff member, consultant, or overlord, was writing these for the alleged authors and merely getting them to sign off? Well, I suppose it could mean that. There were people writing stuff for other people. Um, and that's why uh, I talked to Elsie, uh, you know, also, I did something else, and this may fit right in there. Uh, now, Admiral Hillencoder, Rear Admiral Hillencoder, but that was one of the objections, for example, was that it calls him Admiral uh, Hillencoder. Uh, well, that, that, Kevin Randall said, oh, that document's a fraud because he was only a Rear Admiral. He doesn't mention that all of the military guys they use generic ranks for. Right. You know, general, regardless of whether it was brigadier, major, lieutenant, four-star general, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, where was I going with that? Well, what's your thoughts on this on this Heiser study, oh. let's say? Because that's really what he's trying yeah. to get at. What, what I had to find was that there, I got a bunch, 25 or so, documents from the Truman Library that were signed by Hill and Coder. He was director of Central Intelligence, so that's not too surprising. And then I gave him to a guy named Roger Westcott, who was a, a former chairman of the Linguistic Society and stuff like that, a professor somewhere, and uh, asked for his opinion. I sent him with the uh, briefing document, uh, what are the chances that this was written by him or not, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. And he went over those, and he expressed an opinion that he, he, they, the documents were consistent and that this, this document was consistent with his style. It's linguistic, whatever you call it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't doubt that people have written memos. They signed, I just said one, as a matter of fact where uh, James Lay would have written this brief memo uh, uh, for Bobby Cutler. Because uh, they worked together, and it was just an, a, you know, a routine sort of item. Hmm. So I'm not saying that every document signed with somebody's uh, name on it was written by that person. I'm not saying that at all. Right. But what I am saying is I took every precaution I could to get an analysis and it came out right on Hill Coder anyway. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't think Heiser's work throws out my work. All right. He does say you got to be careful about documents. Well, you got to, yeah. You don't disagree with that at all, so, yeah. No, no. And uh, when I asked uh, Elsie about that, you know, most of what a president signs is prepared elsewhere. Uh yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> and it, he signs it. But 
that's not unusual, is what I'm saying. Okay. You think Ike wrote everything that's got his name on it? I guarantee <laughs> you he didn't. Yeah, exactly. All right, we're down to the final three, so we're good. We're doing good here. Uh, Hillbilly asks. Uh, he says he appreciates that. BOA offers fans of both the show and Stan this opportunity, so it's my pleasure. It's uh, really one of the big thrills for me every holiday season. And his question for Stan is, with the UFOs seemingly able to perform maneuvers that would no doubt leave a human plastered on the side of a craft, do you think they have the know-how to manipulate gravity and therefore also time? Well, I can't say that they don't uh, have the ability to maneuver, right, right. manipulate gravity. I will say this, that many people don't understand this whole business about how much acceleration you can stand. When you start looking at the data and don't think the Air Force didn't worry about how many Gs can you subject the pilot to because you don't want him to black out, you know, the airplanes can handle a lot of Gs. People are not so, not so good. Yeah. But, they found, uh, for example, we, we have a wrong, there's a book, uh, Physics for People Who Don't Think They'd Like Physics, that says when you get to nine Gs, you die. That's baloney. Uh, I've seen test data on uh, pilots performing tracking missions in a big centrifuge while being subjected to 14 Gs for two minutes. That's 300 miles an hour per second. Wow, yeah. Uh, the... The amount of Gs you can stand depends on the duration, the magnitude, how many Gs, and the direction with regard to the body. I think most people have noticed that the astronauts go up on their back. Right, right. Why is that? Because they can stand more Gs that way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Through the ankle and the knee and the hip, uh, we're not nearly as good. And so... If you notice, one of the things that I've noticed about reports of uh, hypermaneuverability for UFOs is that the maneuver takes very little time. Unlike us, where we slow down before we get to the corner, you know? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Pick up afterward. Well, if they're being manipulated by a magneto-aerodynamic system, as I think they are, then you could subject the craft to a huge force for a short period of time electromagnetically. Hmm. And there's even a process called magnetoforming, and you zap a hunk of metal into a die, a mold, if you will, yeah. and you give it a good zap, and it'll take up the shape of the mold. Now, you give it too much, and you break the piece of metal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it turns out a, a human can stand. Now, you're not 80 years old and, you know, just have had three heart attacks or anything like that. I'm saying... You got to be right, uh, right. The best and the brightest, they say. Uh, yeah, and, but you can stand thirty Gs for one second. Think about that for a minute. Zero to six hundred miles an hour in one second. Whoa! And uh, Doctor uh, Stapp, who did a lot of work with these uh, uh, sleds, rocket sleds. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the <laughs> One of them had a little problem. They got up to 600 miles an hour, 618 or something like that, and stopped in a hurry in three quarters of a second. I think he took 40 Gs for that time and lived to tell the tale. Didn't even shorten his life. He lived to be in his 80s. So what I'm saying is it's a tricky business. Uh, No, you can't be walking around drinking a beer while this is going on. 
there were restrictions on all this stuff. Exactly. But uh, the astronauts routinely take 5Gs. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And one of the interesting things that I found is that we are unable to predict who's going to get sick in the vomit comet. Ah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Apparently, it's a complex of things how the body reacts. Mm, I never thought of that, yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff. And uh, some people get sick and some don't, (laughs) but they don't know in advance. Um, okay, this is good because it connects to the next question. Uh, Clinton, uh, I'm not sure if this is Hillary or Bill, but Clinton wants to know uh, what you think of Joseph P. Farrell's perspective on UFO propulsion, namely that uh, enough of a paper trail in the form of patents exists to show that the rudiments of the propulsion technology is understood already publicly. Well, okay, I, when I talk about magnetoaerodynamic, I that wouldn't surprise me at all. But Farrell makes a big thing about Nazi UFOs and quotes me at great length in one of his books, uh, probably more than should be allowed. But anyway, <laughs> well, I, he doesn't seem to be able to make a distinction between artist drawings. Uh, and I've worked on a lot of proposals when I was in industry where you put together a beautiful report on what you're going to build if you get the contract, you know, what's it right. going to look like and all that sort of thing. This is all imaginary, and much of Farrell's stuff about the Nazis was like that. They they talked about all kinds of advanced propulsion systems. Look, ideally, every Air Force would love to have a round vehicle that can go in all different directions, up, down, back, forth, right, left, you know, yeah. backwards. Yeah. Uh, that's ideal. But the fact that you find drawings doesn't mean that it was built and worked. You know, there's a difference. Mm. And often I have found that uh, proposal documents uh, don't always work out. Okay. <laughs> Let me put it that way. All right. You know, so uh, I'd say no to Farrell. All right. And the final question comes from KC Bob, who asks, uh, what is your theory on UFOs with the lights on them, i.e., uh, like in Phoenix, Anytime he reads or hears about UFOs with lights such as this, his mind goes straight to government. Just wondering what your take on this is. Well, I think they put lights on them so they don't get run into by airplanes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, I, and also, hey, if they're going to meet Joe for lunch, uh, it, it probably wouldn't hurt if they, they could communicate with the lights or spot the other one mm. or, you know, I. Uh, who knows? I don't know what their basic rules of operation are. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying just because they have lights doesn't mean that they uh, are. They're ours. They're <laughs> ours, yeah. All right, that wraps up the questions right on time. You're unbelievable. I got one more question for you. Uh, if if Donald Trump gets elected president, do you have a spare room I could stay in uh, up in Canada? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All right. There'll be a big bunch coming this way, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, what's next for you, Stan? What do you got cooking? I know well, the said, big thing yeah. coming up uh, in mid-January, it looks like I'm going to India. Oh, nice. What's that for? To give a lecture. Yeah. Space people. I mean, uh, you know, the Indians are in space now, incidentally. Oh, Nice. Is there a lot of, see, this is intriguing, because I've always been sort of tracking it, UFO, it, so, so there's some UFO interest over there in India. You'll well, this one guy is interested, 
Okay. And he belongs to a space scientist group. Uh, so I'm supposed to educate them all. And he's writing a book, and I'm writing a forward for it. And stuff. Awesome. So I've never been to India. I've been to China and Australia and Korea, but I haven't been to India. So it'll be different. I mean, here I sit in a country with 35 million people. It's much larger than India, which has 1.2 billion people. Talk about culture shock. Huh? Right, right. Wow, that's pretty cool. So that's in January. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, and then, of course, I'll be in Arizona for the International UFO Congress, and I'll be at uh, – there's several other. They can go to my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. Awesome, awesome. Well, hopefully I see you again in Canada this year uh, for the for the big event that yeah. we enjoyed together there. Uh, the name escapes me now uh, off the top Liverpool. of Liverpool. Yes, in Liverpool, yes. The, uh, yeah, I'm supposedly going to be speaking there, so. Yeah, I think it's going to be forward to it. awesome. I'll try and get back up there because I had such a good time. Good. And, and, you know, folks, uh, yeah, it was funny because uh, Paul Kibble, who drove us both back from Liverpool to Nova Scotia, was like, Tim didn't say a word. Folks, that was like me in the back seat listening to Stan Freeman the whole time. It was like I was in complete... <laughs> Uh, just starstruck fanboy mode. So it, it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Hopefully, actually, hopefully it's a twice-in-a-lifetime. We get to do it again uh, this summer. And uh, okay. like I said, Stan, I can't, forward to it. I can't thank you enough. I uh, really do. I love you, man. I do. Well, happy holidays. There you go. Happy Enjoy holidays, them. folks. Thank you so much, Stan, for coming back on the show. Uh, like I said, I hope I see you this summer. And I wish you all the best, perfect health this year. You know, great breakthroughs in research and all that great stuff. And, and uh, you know, you. I hope you electrify the folks in India and around the country as well. So. They've got electricity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for doing it once more, uh, the 11th Annual Holiday Special. Thank you, Stan. My pleasure.